The text for this morning's service is from Galatians 5, verse 22, and 23 and 24. But we just take the one word, self-control. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this morning we have come to the last virtue of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It appears that the Apostle Paul purposely put this particular virtue last on his list. This is not because he considers this particular virtue to be less important than all the others. No, the reason for putting this virtue last, I believe, is that this virtue applies to all the eight preceding ones. For if you want to be able to have any success in showing forth any of the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, then you must be able to practice self-control. Because of our old nature, we are inclined to do the exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit tells us to be. Instead of having a heart full of love, we are inclined to hateful thoughts. We brood, we plot, we seek our own interests. And instead of being joyful, we tend to want to grumble and complain and to feel sorry for ourselves. And instead of being peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, or gentle... We, by our old nature, are quarrelsome, impatient, unkind, wicked, undependable, and harsh. And that is why Paul now puts this particular virtue on the end of his list. If you can exercise self-control in all these things, then you will be a master of yourself and be all of the things that are in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Now you've got all the other ones licked. But now the danger is to forget the work of the Holy Spirit, especially as it comes to this particular virtue. If we forget the Holy Spirit in this, then we are hopelessly lost. Then we have to throw up our arms and say, this is impossible. I can't do it. I know I lack self-control, and that's exactly where my problem is. The very things that I hate is what I do. How then do we practice self-control? Well, brothers and sisters, the only way that that is possible is through the Holy Spirit. I will preach to you God's word under the following theme. We must walk by the Spirit and exercise self-control. We will see in the first place what self-control is, and secondly, what the work of the Holy Spirit is. The interesting thing about those who walk according to the flesh, unbelievers, 
is that those people who do not have the Holy Spirit in their hearts can be divided into two extreme groups. On the one hand, you have those who let their emotions and their desires rule them. And on the other hand, you have those who do the opposite and practice rigorous self-abasement. Regarding the first group, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 19 and following, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In other words, these are the kinds of people who do whatever they like. They're without restraint. They live for the moment. They have no morals or ethics. They do not feel that they are accountable to anyone. All they are interested in is to satisfy their own passions and desires. But there are also those, and those represent the other extreme, who actually believe that they can control their passions, that they are able to practice enough self-control so that they will be able to overcome all natural feelings. They go by the motto, mind over matter. When it comes right down to it, they are not any different than the first group. The only difference is that they think that they can practice self-control. The others, that first group, does not live under that pretense. Both of these groups are wrong. And therefore, Paul speaks out against both. When it comes right down to it, they're essentially not any different from each other. The only difference is that they, that they are under a different mindset. Now, for at the time that Paul wrote this letter, such teachings about the intrinsic worth of self-control were promoted by some very influential philosophers, especially by those known as the Stoic philosophers. And many people liked what these people had to say, and they tried to put that philosophy of the Stoics into practice in their lives. And also some Christians of that day were influenced by that philosophy. And Paul writes against these worldly messengers. For that reason, Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul wants to expose those philosophies of the world. He does that here, but he also does that elsewhere in Colossians, for example. And he spoke about that with the governor, Felix. You can read about that in Acts 24, verse 25, where Paul argued with him about, as it says there, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Why do you think he, ag he argued with that governor about self-control? Well, Paul did so because of the prevailing idea that if one could ex exercise self-control, that then you could obtain to the highest good. Then you would be an ideal person. 
you see the Stoics, and in a certain way also the Platonists, taught that self-control was the answer to all their problems. If you could master that one quality, then you have arrived. And then you are where you have to be. For according to Greek philosophy, the material world is nothing. But the spiritual world is everything. And so what you have to do is you have to deny your flesh and the desires of the flesh. For you see, the body belongs to the material world. And the body is of no account. The spirit, or the soul, on the other hand, is good. And your soul belongs to the elemental spirits. The soul resides in the body, and as such, the soul is imprisoned in it. If you suppress the desires of the flesh, especially such things as food and sex and wine and strong drink, then you qualify for the ideal life. And so self-control was a very important, if not the most important concept in the minds of those who followed that philosophy. And by denying the fleshly things, you will even become divine. For if you do that, and then your spirit will become so light and so detached from your body that you will be able to join the world of the spirits and become a god yourself. That is the philosophy of Plato. Now you can imagine that some of these elements would also be attractive to the Christians of Paul's day. And they like the idea that self-control will make you share in the divine, in God. For in this way you can also have a role in your own salvation. Indeed, also the early church, centuries after Christ's death, continued to be led astray by such human philosophy. And these Christians sincerely wanted to glorify God and thought that they would be able to do so by self-deprivation, by avoiding what they thought was harmful and by limiting oneself to only what is absolutely necessary to maintain life. And so what did some of these Christians do? Well, there were those who refused to marry. For in that way, they could not be defiled by the flesh of a woman and by their own flesh. And that is why later it became a requirement for priests not to marry. Marriage belongs to earthly things, and priests must be busy with spiritual things only. And that is why others also completely isolated themselves from society and lived in monasteries. There they could engage in only the absolute necessities of life and ponder spiritual matters only. They made a vow of poverty, therefore. But note well what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 16. He says there, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And then further on, he says in verse 20 and following, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Or as the RSV has it, in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, says Paul, don't be fooled by what those Greek philosophers tell you. Self-control is not going to be able to save you. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christ saves you. He nailed your sins to the cross. He has also crucified the sinful nature that is the flesh with its passions and desires. He has nailed them to the cross, as the text also says. And that is the message throughout which Paul delivers to those Galatians. For they were trying to do the same thing as those Greek philosophers were trying to do. Namely, to obtain perfection through the works of the law. And they wanted to crucify their own flesh. But now listen to what he says to them further in chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And then he goes on in that second verse by saying, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort. In other words, he says to them, don't you know that you are now members of Christ and that his death meant the death of your own sins? Do you not know that you were buried with him in baptism and that you were made alive together with him? Foolish Galatians, do you think you can obtain perfection without Christ? Don't be so naive. Do you not know that you can share with Christ, not because you are able to muster self-control, but through faith alone? Brothers and sisters, it is easy to fall into the trap, the same trap as the Galatians. And we think that we must be able by ourselves to master our natural desires. And if we don't, we feel guilty. As I was preparing these series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit, I was not looking forward to dealing with this final one. For in my own mind, I too had succumbed to the same kind of thinking as the Galatians. I thought that by having to preach about this, I would be too much of a hypocrite. I felt quite inadequate, especially in reference to this virtue, and I still do. But in studying this virtue, I again came to the realization of God's great love and of the tremendous comfort of his gospel. For also with this virtue, we are completely dependent on the Lord. He is the only one who can perfect you. Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who was able to exercise true self-control. For even though he was a human being, he never failed once. And he did that for our sakes. We are unable of ourselves to practice self-control. 
we need the Lord in every respect. Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who was able to exercise self-control. Even though he was a human being, he never failed once. And so we need the Lord our God in every respect. And that does not mean that we must not try to deny our sinful flesh. Of course we have to. But we also have the comfort of knowing that we cannot be perfect. Also when it comes to this virtue. Only the Holy Spirit can make us perfect in Christ. As I studied for this sermon, I also was reminded of something else. Namely that some of those things that those would deny themselves, the Lord does not deny us. Marriage, for example. Listen to what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9 about marriage. It says there, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of the meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. For this is your lot in your life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. The Lord also gives us a husband or a wife to enjoy ourselves and to serve the Lord with. And the same thing with regard to food. It says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12 and 13, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all toil. This is the gift of God. And in chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. You see, the Bible teaches us to regard food and drink marriage and material goods as gifts to be gratefully enjoyed. But as the preacher also says in chapter 11, we may certainly not abuse those gifts. They are all to be used for God's glory. He says in verse 9, Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. And that then is the other important element that belongs to this virtue. In spite of the fact that Christ perfects our good works, we are put to work as well. And God will bring us into judgment if we abuse his gifts. And therefore, make no mistake about it, Self-control is still very much commanded of each and every one of us. In Proverbs 25, verse 28, we read the wise saying that, like a city whose walls are broken down, is a man who lacks self-control. He who has no self-control easily falls prey to Satan, who at all times wants to invade our hearts. A person without such a defense easily succumbs to temptation. And you have to learn self-control in your youth. A child must learn that it is destructive if he gives in to the desires of the flesh. That is why parents have to teach their children to control their emotions and desires. They must, for example, learn to curb their tongue, not to say everything that comes immediately to their minds. They must learn not to become easily irritated. They must learn that they cannot have everything that they set their heart on. They must learn to be able to discipline themselves with regard to their schoolwork. 
And as they grow up, they must learn to be able to discipline themselves regarding the use of alcohol. And especially, they must learn to be able to suppress their sexual desires. For it is noteworthy that self-control is most often mentioned with respect to our sexuality. How many lives have not been seriously affected because of lack of self-control in that regard? But self-control is not something that you learn in your youth, like multiplication tables, and then you know it for the rest of your life. No, it is something you have to continue to exercise, to continue to learn to do. All of us have to continue to fight against the desires of the flesh. It is a constant battle which continues all the days that God gives us here on earth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 and following, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The word self-control literally means to have power over oneself. But for the Christian, self-control can only be achieved through submission to the Holy Spirit. There is no place in Christian thought to self-mastery. All power comes from God alone. It is not a battle which we fight on our own. It is not as if we ourselves have the reins in our own hands. He who is born of the Spirit knows his own sinfulness and weaknesses, and he knows that effect of self-control is through divine grace, and that it is not his own native power. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. We come to the second point. The text says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The translation, which reflects the original more accurately, would be, If we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, let us also walk. It's somewhat awkward in English, but it shows that the Holy Spirit is in the center. And further, by having the phrases, if we live at the beginning and let us walk at the end, the contrast between living and walking is also brought out. And that means that the source of our whole life is the Spirit. And that is why we take there our starting point. For it is alone the Holy Spirit that must direct our steps. Only if the Spirit guides us can we make progress in our lives. Only through the Spirit can we advance step by step to the goal of perfection. It is true that people of the world are also able to restrain their base instincts to some extent. There are many unbelievers who lead respectable and sober lives, and I'm sure you know many people like that. They do not abuse their bodies. They have a rigorous exercise routine. They're honest, law-abiding, and they are respected by all. They are considerate, not easily angered. They show patience and restraint. And we may wonder whether these virtues also reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Well, brothers and sisters, then I would like to remind you that it is also possible to counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit. It may seem like the real thing, but it isn't. For you see, when the Holy Spirit produces the fruit, then God gets the glory. 
A Christian does these things for completely different reasons than an unbeliever. A Christian who truly knows his own sinfulness does not boast of his own spirituality. He is not intimately proud of himself. He doesn't pat himself on the back and thinks how spiritual he is. But he thinks about how God is at work in his life. But when the flesh is at work, then you look for praise for yourself. Now you want to notice others how good you are. But the work of the Spirit is not for our, for our glorification, but for the glorification of God. The Holy Spirit works to make us more and more like Christ. An unbeliever never shows self-control because he wants to glorify God in this way. He will do it for selfish reasons, whatever they may be. It could be that he does it because he wants others to think of him as a good person or because he wants to be able to live on this earth as long as possible. Whatever his reasons, they are never so that he may glorify God. They are fruits which are put on display, but which are not for the consumption of God. For a Christian, that's quite different. You and I, we must bear fruit in a completely different way. And that is why that fruit must also be cultivated. That means there has to be a right atmosphere in which it has to grow. For every gardener knows that fruit can only grow in the, in the right climate. Fruit doesn't grow in soil which has no nourishment, or where there are lots of weeds, or where there is no moisture. And spiritual growth can only occur where we truly submit ourselves to God's word. And that is why personal Bible study is so important. It's also important to steep our lives in prayer, to be close to God, and to let him take us by the hand and guide our lives. If we are so minded, then we do not associate with unspiritual people either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And fruit can also grow in the right temperature only. Fruit does not grow in cold temperatures, for example. A farmer heeds the warning signs of frost, and he will do everything to protect his crop. Nor can fruit grow in extreme heat. That is why when fruit is grown in greenhouses, the farmer must at all times be aware of the temperature so that the fruit does not wilt and die. Now the same thing can be said about the fruit of the Spirit. It can only grow in the right temperature. The fruit of the Spirit cannot grow where one is cold to God and His promises and demands. It cannot grow in a church where God's love and demands are not taken seriously. Nor can it grow there where the atmosphere is too hot and where brothers and sisters are constantly at each other's throats. No, the right climate must prevail. We must heed the warning signs of danger which might kill the fruit of the Spirit. It must grow in the right temperature. We must always be willing to test the temperature and to adjust it when necessary. Let me demonstrate the need for that from an illustration from nature. The Lord has provided most animals with a warning system to fear things which may be harmful to them. But because of the corruption of all of nature due to sin, there are some serious flaws. That's the case with frogs, for example. For if you place a frog in a pan of warm water under which heat is applied very gradually, 
he will typically show no inclination to escape. Since he is a cold-blooded creature, his body temperature remains approximately the same as the water around him, and he does not notice the slow change taking place. As the temperature continues to intensify, the frog remains oblivious to the danger. He could easily hop to safety, but he is apparently thinking about something else. He will just sit there, constantly peering over the edge of the pan while the steam curls ominously around his nostrils. Eventually, the boiling water will kill him, having succumbed to a fate he could have easily escaped. Now, we as sinful human beings also have some perceptual inadequacies, some of those same perceptual inadequacies as the frog. We are instantly aware of sudden dangers. But if a threatening problem arises very slowly, we become oblivious to the danger. If we constantly surround ourselves, for example, with unspiritual people, if we do not notice the danger signs in our lives, then we are endangering our very lives, our lives in the spirit. And therefore, a Christian must be ever watchful. He must be in the right atmosphere. Fruit only grows in the climate blessed with an abundance of the Spirit and the Word. When Paul says that we must walk in the Spirit, he means that we must keep in step with Him. We may not run ahead or lag behind. And this involves God's Word, prayer, worship, praise and fellowship with God's people. Only there will you find the right temperature. Outside of this, the temperature is either too hot or too cold, and it will eventually kill you. We have now come to the end of the series of the Sermons of the Fruit of the Spirit. And in all this, we must, we must remember that that fruit is produced for consumption. We do not put fruit on display to be admired. And the people around us are very hungry for good fruit. They are starving for love joy, peace, and all the other virtues of the Spirit. We do not bear fruit for our own consumption, but we bear fruit so that others may feel fed and helped, and so that Christ may be glorified. The flesh may produce results that bring praise to us, but the flesh cannot produce fruit that, belongs, that brings glory to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit gives us the freedom from sin and self. And therefore, only God can be given the glory. And so let me ask you, will you yield your flesh to the Holy Spirit and also let him work in you? For the reward is great, brothers and sisters. You will notice the result in your own life. You will be more peaceful. You will have a more content existence. You will be happier in your own life. And above all, you will be at peace with your Heavenly Father. And it is a peace which will be complete only in the life to come. And that's what we together are looking forward for. We're looking toward the time when the fruit of the Spirit will be complete, to a time when there is no longer anything lacking in our lives. And that time will come. It will be a time of eternal happiness. That is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. Amen.